from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, IFAS. It's really useful to be proficient at several of these uh, strategies, particularly since we can combine them or use uh, uh, this staged approach where uh, the more severe the case you're dealing with, uh, you bring out the heavy artillery uh, for managing the IFIS. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Chang declares consulting fees from AMO, Alcon, and Visiogen. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. Superman had kryptonite. Cataract surgeons have tamsulosin. Marketed in the U.S. as Flomax, tamsulosin has been implicated in the development of intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, IFIS, or IFIS. But unlike Superman, we have tools to battle our nemesis. David Chang recently published a study of these techniques, and I'm happy to have him as my guest today. David Chang, welcome to A Scene From Here. What defines IFIS? Okay. Intraoperative floppy iris syndrome, uh, when we first described it, we were impressed with uh, a triad of billowing of the iris, uh, iris prolapse, or at least a strong tendency for that, and then a progressive uh, constriction of the pupil during surgery. And while these cases often are also characterized by poor preoperative pupil dilation. Uh, It isn't always the case, as you know, and the pupil may start out to be reasonably large and then constrict uh, during the case. I think we would probably expand the definition now to really say that it's uh, any uh, of these uh, pupil abnormalities are are a part of the IFAS uh, spectrum. And I think for our prospective study, we kind of try to grade uh, all of these things. And I think from that, I would now say that there's really a spectrum of iris misbehavior that might include uh, things on the mild end, maybe just a little bit of billowing, to on the severe end, the full triad, along with poor preoperative pupil dilation. How is tamsulosin different from other systemic alpha-1 adrenergic antagonists? Yeah, that's a great question. The uh, classic alpha-1 antagonists uh, are not selective for just alpha-1A. So the alpha-1 receptor in, uh, the alpha-1 receptor basically has three major subtypes, A, B, and D. And in the prostate and also in the iris dilator muscle, the predominant receptor 
is the alpha-1A. It accounts for about 70 to 80 percent of all the alpha-1 receptors. So what is uh, somewhat unique to tamsulosin is that it's the only one that's specific to this alpha-1A subtype. The others that would include um, hytrin or cardora or uroxitrol are so-called nonspecific uh, alpha blockers. And the advantage comes in the treatment of BPH uh, with respect to postural hypotension. And if you can uh, be more alpha-1A selective, there's less effect on the smooth muscle and vascular walls, and there's therefore uh, less tendency toward postural hypotension. I think the, uh, this doesn't really explain why IFAS is so much more strongly associated with tamsulosin, however. And I think uh, what we, we've learned since is that there's also a different affinity of these drugs for the alpha-1A receptor. And tamsulosin, compared to the others, has a much, much stronger affinity for the receptor. Uh, and, uh, you know, we think that that's why uh, it is so much more strongly associated uh, with IFIS. There was a, an interesting study out of Scandinavia uh, where they actually did uh, um, uh, testing of the aqueous in eyes of patients who had been on tamsulosin but in whom it had been stopped anywhere from one to four weeks uh, prior to surgery. And uh, they were able to actually uh, assay for tamsulosin in three of the five eyes in these patients. Uh, and so, again, this is anywhere from one to four weeks after the drug has been stopped. So this would suggest a very prolonged binding time of the drug to the receptor, at least in those patients. Clearly, tamsulosin is associated with IFAS. In practical terms, how much of IFAS is attributable to tamsulosin? Um, I think that uh, there have been a couple of uh, retrospective surveys, and uh, in most of them, again, um, the majority of cases have been associated with tamsulosin as compared to the nonspecific alpha blockers. And uh, I think uh, many of us have seen a tendency toward this with patients even taking the herbal remedy saw palmetto, uh, there are certain psychotropic drugs that have some alpha-blocking um, capabilities that are also have been reported associated uh, with IFIS. But in the big scheme of things, um, uh, I would say that the vast, vast majority of these uh, cases are associated with tamsulosin. And uh, uh, in my own experience, I've seen plenty of cases of the nonspecific alpha blockers where there seemingly is very little effect. So uh, I think it, it's nice to be uh, aware that any of these drugs uh, can cause it, but when I really think of severe IFIS, um, I really, you know, I, I really think that tamsulosin still is the major, uh, major culprit. Now, what if a patient has been off of tamsulosin for a year prior to cataract surgery? Yeah, I, I think, again, if you, you think in terms of IFAS as having a, a spectrum of severity, uh, and we know from our prospective trial that uh, patients taking it, some of them still actually don't seem to show IFIS, so it's not uh, a 100% phenomenon. But um, if you think in terms of severity, I think patients that have been off of it for a while will tend to have a less severe uh, syndrome. 
but we continue to be impressed with the fact that patients that have been off of it for, let's say, a year uh, still show uh, a lot of the classic signs of that. So uh, I think because of that, most of us are really not bothering to stop uh, the drug. There's at least a theoretical concern that people with severe uh, BPH uh, could have acute urinary retention uh, triggered by this, and certainly if uh, someone was going to try to use atropine as part of their management, uh, you, you want to be careful not to have the patient uh, uh, stop any of these drugs. And sometimes they, they do this on their own after hearing from the ophthalmologist that uh, they may potentially uh, increase the difficulty of doing cataract surgery. Uh, so a lot of patients will just go ahead and stop it on their own. And some of them will stop it on their own even after cataract surgery, thinking that there's a harm to the drug. And so we have to uh, clarify to them that uh, that really is not necessary. What maneuvers have been proposed to address IFAS? Um, well, there's been a host of uh, great ideas advanced by, by many people. And uh, I think, again, part of this is the fact that we're all faced with this continuum of severity. And we'll try something, and, and uh, particularly if we're using it in cases that are mild to moderate, we'll be impressed with how well it works. And then all of a sudden, we find a severe case where it may not work as well. Uh, I would sort of divide these into three broad categories, uh, pharmacologic, uh, some type of viscoadaptive or viscoelastic uh, strategy, and then mechanical uh, dilating devices. So uh, as far as pharmacologic, I think this is, is uh, very, very popular. Um, Richard Packard first advocated using intracameral phenylephrine, which is not easily available, uh, uh, it, certainly in the United States. Uh, Joel Sugar um, pioneered using intracameral epinephrine, uh, and these are both uh, direct alpha agonists that can... Uh, in some cases actually dilate the pupil much wider, uh, but even if they don't do that, they will make the iris stroma more rigid and reduce the tendency for both uh, billowing uh, and prolapse, uh, uh, which in turn reduces the tendency to constrict. So uh, this is a terrific uh, and inexpensive technique, um, and I think uh, people should definitely be familiar with it. In the U.S., uh, we would select an unpreserved epinephrine, which is 1 to 1,000, uh, such as that made by American Regent. It's bisulfite-free. Uh, you can mix this either 1 to 3 or 1 to 4 with either plain BSS or BSS+. Uh, so what I do is I take 0.6 mLs of plain BSS in my hydrodissection uh, syringe, and then I add to it 0.2 mLs of the bisulfite-free epi, and that's a one-to-four dilution. And, and thanks to Joel Sugar, we know that the pH of such a mixture uh, is really going to be quite physiologic. And having done this in well over 100 cases, I've certainly seen no adverse uh, effect uh, of this. The other uh, adjunctive pharmacologic strategy uh, was first proposed by Sam Maskett, and that's to use 1% atropine BID for one to two days before the surgery. 
and uh, Sam published a series of about a dozen patients where he felt that combining this with intracameral epinephrine was particularly effective. Uh, again, uh, that I think is going to be the surgeon's uh, choice. Um, Viscoadaptive, uh, we certainly uh, have heard um, a lot about Helon 5, and Bob Osher and Doug Koch were among the first to uh, talk about using this. Uh, with everyone agreeing that you need to reduce your aspiration flow and vacuum in order to avoid um, uh, evacuating the Helon 5 too quickly. And because it is so um, cohesive, it really will push the uh, pupil open and hold the uh, iris back. Perhaps the, the one problem with this is uh, if surgeons aren't already quite familiar uh, with Helon 5 and used to using it, uh, it does take a little bit of uh, practice and there is a little bit of a learning curve associated with this. And in addition, uh, it does constrain you to using much lower flow and vacuum parameters than you might ordinarily use. Uh, and where would this be important to say perhaps with a more complicated case, a denser nucleus, uh, you know, we really miss having that higher flow uh, and vacuum. Um, so what I usually do is if I think the case is uh, going to be mild uh, to moderate, uh, and I, I would anticipate that because the pupil is dilated pretty well preoperatively, and maybe the patient's already been off of Flomax or they're on one of the nonspecific alpha blockers, I'll usually just go to epinephrine straight off. And as I said, on a mild case, sometimes you'll even see the pupil get uh, larger uh, after uh, about 30 seconds. Let's say the pupil doesn't enlarge and it's still only about 4 to 5 millimeters. Uh, you could then consider Helon 5 to uh, uh, visco-dilate the pupil further uh, and then relying on your epinephrine at the same time to sort of create a more rigid iris uh, stroma. Um, others have talked about using uh, discovisc. Uh, I think any uh, viscoelastic that does a good job of staying in the eye uh, and is uh, highly retentive and dispersives uh, would certainly be in that category, uh, would be another good candidate uh, for managing um, uh, IFAS. The thing I like about iris retractors uh, is that this is a strategy that is absolutely 100% reliable uh, in uh, opening up and maintaining uh, your dilated pupil. And there's some tricks to, to doing this, but uh, this is what I would really go to if I think I have a severe IFAS case or if I have other uh, risk factors that might uh, be uh, present. So uh, the tip-off that you're going to have a more severe case would be certainly a patient that's been on tamsulosin, maybe someone who really dilates poorly preoperatively. And uh, even when you just put in your uh, intracameral uh, anesthetic or lidocaine, if you immediately start seeing billowing at that point, you pretty much know that this uh, iris dilator muscle uh, is not going to uh, be very rigid at all. So uh, at that point, I might go to uh, iris retractors. Uh, my favorite uh, for this is to use 4-O-proline instead of 6-O-nylon uh, iris retractors. And uh, these are available through FCI or through Catena. 
what's nice about 4-O-proline, it's about the same size as an IOL haptic, uh, and so it's, it's stiffer and it's more rigid, and it's a lot easier to manipulate it in my experience. Uh, the idea of going in a diamond configuration, as has been published by Odding and Omfroy, uh, I think is a really uh, nice pearl. Uh, it requires that uh, after you make your clear corneal temporal incision, you actually make a separate stab incision right behind it, uh, aiming more posteriorly toward the iris margin, uh, so that you have a separate track underneath your clear corneal tunnel for the subincisional retractor. And what that retractor will then do is it'll pull the iris down and uh, underneath the phaco tip so it's out of your way. Uh, you don't have to sort of uh, cross over the hurdle of this uh, tented up iris that would result with a, um, a square configuration. You also get great exposure nasally uh, if you're doing phaco chop for your chopper uh, from that nasal retractor. Uh, and so it avoids having to cross over this tented up iris and it gives you great exposure right in front of the uh, phaco tip. Uh, the other nice thing about uh, iris hooks with IFIS is that these pupils are very elastic and unlike the fibrotic pupils that we uh, were used to with pilocarpine or you might see with pseudoxfoliation, uh, these can really stretch fairly well without tearing. And so you can be much more aggressive than I think we would have been in the past with the fibrotic pupil about stretching these pupils uh, open. And uh, as, you, as soon as you remove the retractors after the uh, uh, lens implant has been placed, you see the iris literally just snap right down to uh, its original size. That's how uh, elastic it is. Uh, the final objection historically to iris retractors, of course, has been the expense. Uh, and these uh, 4.0 proline retractors are actually reusable. They're that sturdy, so you simply uh, rinse them uh, off, and uh, they have a little case that's autoclavable, so uh, it actually uh, makes this uh, strategy very cost-effective. Um, the other type of mechanical strategy would be uh, pupil expansion rings. These are made either by, uh, by Morcher, by Movella, or by uh, Eagle Vision. Uh, and uh, they are uh, popular with uh, some people. Uh, they're a little bit more expensive because these are all disposable devices, uh, some of which require expensive uh, injectors, uh, but they certainly work. Uh, they're a little harder to put in if the pupil is really small uh, or if it's really large because uh, the pupil has to sort of uh, be um, come down enough that it actually fits into the grooves on these rings. Uh, so those would be the, the prime three uh, types of maneuvers that I think people are going to uh, to manage uh, IFIS. There's always a, other smaller nuances. Certainly, I think if you can work at lower flow rates, uh, lower vacuum, uh, that will help. Um, some people are uh, uh, who are already comfortable with uh, by biaxial microincisional phaco. Uh, might find that uh, there's less flow going through the eye and somewhat tighter incisions, and, and that may help uh, as well. And I think a lot of people just pay a lot more attention to their incisional architecture, uh, making sure that uh, they don't enter too posteriorly and have a fairly long uh, tunnel uh, for their um, phaco incision.
when IFIS is present, how common are surgical complications like posterior capsule rupture? Um, I think that uh, most of what's in the literature uh, was a historical retrospective. Uh, and, uh, you know, people would go back and look at their database in terms of uh, posterior capsule rupture and how many of these cases were on Flomax or vice versa. How many patients did we have on Flomax? And of those, how often did we rupture the capsule? Uh, and there are a couple of uh, reviews that have shown that actually the, the posterior capsule rate rupture rate was rather significant. Uh, of course, in all of these situations, um, the surgeons had, had no way to anticipate at that time what was about to happen, and uh, having a, a pupil unexpectedly come down in the middle of the case, I think we all understand how that would uh, increase the, the risk of posterior capsule rupture. So uh, our question then was moving forward, is this something that would uh, still uh, be a, a significant problem, and that was really the impetus to doing a, a large multicenter prospective trial uh, to uh, see if surgeons were able to use some of these alternative techniques, uh, would we be able to um, uh, avoid a, a much higher rate of uh, complications? David, can I have you describe the design of your study? Sure. Um, I think what we wanted to do is include multiple surgeons so we could uh, get as many cases in a short amount of, of time. So we actually had 10 uh, sites around the United States with about uh, 14 or 15 surgeons. Um, one criticism might be that we, we took very well-known, high-volume, experienced surgeons, but at the time when we were designing this, there was, uh, you know, really a lot of concern about uh, how difficult these cases uh, were. Um, we um, really just looked only at patients who were taking a tamsulosin. Uh, so we, we basically asked the surgeons to use one of four uh, management strategies uh, to do the case, uh, either preoperative atropine or um, Helon-5 with low flow parameters or iris retractors or a pupil expansion ring. Uh, we didn't really, uh, at the time we designed the study, uh, really the uh, Joel Sugar had not really uh, reported on epinephrine, and uh, with Richard Packer's idea of phenylephrine, that really wasn't available to us in the United States. So unfortunately, we did not include that as a treatment arm. Uh, we decided that uh, rather than try to randomize uh, among these strategies, uh, we were more concerned that the, you know, the surgeon be allowed to do whatever was needed to have the best outcome in the case. So we left it to the surgeon's discretion as to what they would try. And furthermore, we said that if you need to combine strategies, for instance, if the Helon-5 alone wasn't working or the atropine wasn't working, you could then move to a second strategy, uh, again, all with the idea that we wanted to maximize the odds for success. Uh, we did get uh, a patient consent and IRB approval at all the sites and in every case. And then we, we looked at uh, a number of parameters such as preoperative pupil diameter and what happened to the pupil at various stages during the case. Uh, we looked at, uh, of course, the usual uh, outcome measures and uh, we uh, basically looked at other things like eye color, presence of diabetes, pseudoexfoliation. 
and so forth. And really the only exclusion criteria would be people with uh, known traumatic cataracts or something like that where uh, uh, there was a zonular dialysis. Um, so we enrolled uh, actually a total of 167 uh, consecutive eyes and 135 patients uh, on tamsulosin during about a seven-month uh, period. And uh, as uh, actually the majority of surgeons uh, used Helon-5, uh, the next most common strategy was uh, iris retractors, followed by um, atropine and pupil expansion uh, rings. Um, luckily, uh, we found that uh, fortunately the um, incidence of posterior capsule rupture was uh, just basically one case or 0.6%. Uh, and uh, we really just had one case of CME uh, that responded uh, to uh, medication. Uh, the most common complication was actually uh, just uh, pupil or rather iris transillumination defects due to uh, iris prolapse. Uh, and so the overall uh, results were encouraging with respect to the fact that uh, for being forewarned about the possibility of IFIS and then using some of the techniques that we've described uh, indicated at least in this population with very experienced surgeons that the complication rate uh, was not uh, significantly higher. Uh, that didn't mean that the cases weren't more difficult than if patients hadn't been on IFAS, but specifically uh, surgery could be done with a very acceptably low complication rate uh, by having this, uh, uh, not, by having prior knowledge that the patient uh, uh, was on IFAS. Um, some of the more interesting aspects of this, um, we, we did rate the severity of the various uh, iris behavior signs and uh, we pretty much defined mild IFAS as having billowing but without significant uh, pupil constriction. If the pupil diameter came down by two millimeters or more, uh, or in the case of iris hooks and um, expansion rings, if the pupil came down by uh, three millimeters or more, uh, then we felt that that uh, constituted pupil constriction and that would then be a moderate case. And if there was a strong tendency for iris prolapse, uh, in other words, you had the whole triad, then that would be severe. So using this scale, 10% uh, of the cases, uh, really the surgeon felt there was no IFIS at all. Uh, in 17% of the cases, it was mild. Uh, in 30% of the cases, it was moderate, and then in 43% of the cases, it was severe. So that meant that three out of four patients still had a significant uh, constriction of their pupil uh, occur during the case. 49% of the eyes in this study were blue. Is that important? Yeah, I don't think that uh, it's helpful at all. And I, I uh, we looked in our original uh, paper with uh, John Campbell, and I looked at iris color, and again didn't see uh, that strong of a tendency. Uh, so I don't think that uh, this is a is a major factor. And again, these were um, just the 100. This is just the um, 132 consecutive patients that we enrolled, and that was just the distribution of the uh, the iris color. 
Uh, one other thing that we did look at was, um, uh, you know, surgeons were allowed to stop uh, Flomax um, uh, if they wanted to in this study. Uh, and it turned out that in 19% of the surgeries, the Flomax was stopped uh, for at least a week prior to surgery. Um, when we looked at the data, this resulted in a slightly larger pupil diameter preoperatively compared to those eyes in which the Flomax wasn't stopped. Uh, but if you looked at the IFIS severity, it really made no difference. Uh, and specifically, if you looked at the, the patients that were either uh, managed with Helon-5 or atropine, uh, so they didn't have iris hooks or pupil expansion rings, you know, this would the, be the group where you'd wonder, gee, maybe if I stop Flomax, I, that might help. And even if you looked at those subgroups, there was really no improvement in the severity scores of, of IFAS. So I think based on that, um, I, I don't feel it's uh, of enough benefit to stop Flomax preoperatively uh, when you, you are then faced with all the, you know, the symptoms that the patient would have or the confusion and, and, and the questions that arise when the patient is told to stop their drug. David, dealing with your own practice now, do you manage patients differently if their IFAS is mild or moderate or severe, or is this something that we only know about intraoperatively anyway? Right. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, certainly, if uh, I, we elicit a history of any type of alpha blocker use, uh, uh, we're, we're alert to that. Um, as I said, if they're currently on an alpha blocker, uh, but they dilate pretty well, I'll typically uh, just add epinephrine uh, and uh, give a little intracamel epinephrine before I do the capsulorexis. Uh, I may or may not uh, add Helon-5 if I need to just dilate the pupil a little bit more for the uh, capsulorexis. Uh, personally, right now, I'm not using uh, atropine. Uh, again, um, it, it's uh, one more... Uh, well, personally, right now, I'm not using uh, atropine uh, preoperatively, and I, I think we, we probably get a huge pharmacological effect when it's going to work from the epinephrine alone. Um, if the patient is on tamsulosin and the pupil is still only dilating the three or four millimeters, uh, I'm still likely going to use iris retractors because I just expect that that's going to be a more severe case. And as I said uh, earlier, if they also have a dense nucleus or they have pseudoexfoliation or they're a one-eyed patient or any other factor is there, then I, I'm more likely going to use iris hooks because it's just 100% reliable that I'm not going to have to worry about any of the uh, IFAS uh, triad during that case. Uh, and uh, as I say, uh, with a denser lens in particular, I really don't want to have to modify my FACO machine parameters or technique, uh, and that's what iris retractors allow us to do. Uh, I think we've all had that case where we think the pupil is just fine. Uh, we, uh, I, I think everyone understands that by manual stretching of the pupil does not work with IFIS and may in fact make the, uh, the billowing worse. So we go ahead and we do the capsulorexis, and uh, then the minute the FACO tip is in there and we have the uh, flow uh, starting up, 
we start to see the billowing and the constriction, what to do with that point. Um, this is where I would try epinephrine next. It's a great rescue technique uh, in that uh, it may stop and quiet down the billowing immediately. Um, you still can put in iris retractors. You just have to be a little more careful that you don't hook the uh, capsulorexis margin at the same time you're trying to uh, engage the pupillary edge. Sometimes a patient doesn't remember that he had been on tamsulosin a year before surgery. Sometimes you don't know that a patient is going to have IFIS until surgery begins. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think uh, in spite of all of your efforts uh, to elicit the history, I mean, we, we all know there are lots of situations where the history may not be reliable, either because of patient's memory or their language uh, or just uh, you know, lack of uh, familiarity with the names of the drugs they're taking. Um, in addition, uh, a lot of uh, this is a subject where uh, some individuals uh, are perhaps a little embarrassed about talking about it or they may not think it's terribly relevant, uh, certainly if it's a drug they're no longer taking. So I, I think we all continue to to be in surgery and all of a sudden start to see uh, a pupil that doesn't dilate well or that's starting to prolapse a little bit and maybe at that point we ask them on the table, are you sure you never took this or that? Uh, so I think we, we all still encounter that. Uh, there are still uh, patients who've never been on an alpha blocker that seem to show some of these signs and, and I think the nice thing now is we are all sensitive to this and if we start to see that, uh, um, we're much more likely to alter our strategy. And again, maybe it is putting in uh, some intracameral epinephrine at that point or getting a vial of Helon-5 at that point, or even if necessary, bringing out iris retractors at that point. Uh, but I think as, at the first sign that we see this happening, even if we didn't uh, 100% uh, anticipate this preoperatively, uh, we can still uh, proceed with managing the pupil at whatever point it starts to come down because of prolapse. David, is there anything that you'd like to add? Well, you know, I, I think that um, I would uh, encourage uh, people to, again, really think of IFAS as part of this continuum with a range of severity that goes from mild, uh, moderate, to advanced and severe. Uh, I think it's really useful to be uh, proficient at several of these uh, strategies, particularly since we can combine them or use uh, uh, this staged approach where uh, the more severe the case you're dealing with, uh, you bring out the heavy artillery uh, for managing the IFIS. Um, and uh, I think that's probably uh, the most important thing. It's kind of renewed uh, everyone's focus on small pupil management and, and the varied techniques uh, that we have available to us. Uh, and these are uh, skills that uh, help us in our non-IFAS cases uh, with small pupils as well. Uh, uh, I personally find myself using uh, uh, epinephrine a lot on, on people perhaps that just uh, didn't uh, dilate quite as well or, or maybe... Uh, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they didn't get the dilating drops for that long prior to their being in the operating room, and, and I find that to be helpful. And I also find myself using iris retractors uh, more, 
you, this is something where one finds that the more often you use it, it you, you get very proficient at it, and it takes very little extra time at all to do this. Uh, and then you can really relax uh, with respect to the pupil during the case. And I find that uh, I'm using iris retractors a lot more in pseudoxfoliation patients or, or patients with other conditions where they don't uh, dilate. So uh, maybe uh, this has been a good thing that it's, again, uh, refocused our attention on uh, different ways to manage the pupil uh, aside from just stretching it. David Chang, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thank you, Josh. This is a terrific thing, and I, I, I'm sure this as an application is just going to grow and grow. David Chang is clinical professor of ophthalmology at the University of California, San Francisco, in San Francisco, California. His paper, Prospective Multicenter Evaluation of Cataract Surgery in Patients Taking Tamsulosin, Flomax, appears in the May 2007 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Chang or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.